Good morning. Uh, before I get into the word, I just wanted to do, for, especially for those of you who are regulars, part of the congregation here at 502, just wanted to do a little bit of an update about how we're organizing ourselves in terms of Ian and Lindsay leaving, which is now very soon. So going at the end of July uh, to start a new church up in, up in Glasgow. And um, I know that raises all kinds of questions about how we're going to fit all the gaps they leave, which is a challenge. Um, so uh, those of you who are members of the church will have had an email this week about a couple of positions we're looking to fill in terms of administrative help in the office. Uh, so we're looking to recruit for that. And then in terms of leadership here, one of the things that we want to do is to, uh, we've, we've been, uh, Nathaniel, who's not here this morning, is leading worship at Alder Road. Uh, Nathaniel, who's uh, obviously has such a big leadership role with us already, we want to recognize him as an elder, which is something we've been talking about for a long time and would have done anyway. But the fact that Ian is moving on kind of sharpens the, the, the kind of planning on that. So one of the things we want to do at the church day out on the 16th of June is as part of that day, we'll have a the kind of the official church send-off for Ian and Lindsay on that day. And we will also uh, pray for Nathaniel and Emma and recognize Nathaniel as an elder. So that's another reason to sign up to be at the church day out on the 16th of June if you haven't already done that. Um, so Nathaniel uh, and Gordon were both recognized as elders here. Uh, with respons special responsibility for this congregation, working with the wider leadership team, Matthew Ashton, Matthew Painter particularly, and others involved in that. And uh, we're working out how to uh, fill the gaps which Ian is leaving behind. But I just want you to be aware of that so you, so you know that. I'm sure that uh, those of you who are part of the church will support Nathaniel uh, coming into eldership. Probably most of you assume he is already because of the way he operates. Uh, but we've got a, got a couple of weeks before that happens, or three weeks before that happens, so if you have any other comments, uh, you can, of course, feed those back to me. But that's the plan, 16th of June. We'll recognize Nathaniel as an elder. We'll say a special goodbye to Ian and Lindsay, even though they'll still be with us for a few weeks after that, but that seems the best moment at which to, to do that and pray for them, commission them, as they go off to start a new congregation in Glasgow. So there'll be more on all that over the next few weeks update you more on how we're practically going to organize ourselves with Ian moving on but I just wanted you to know that this morning and uh, know that before we communicated that to the whole church I'll send an email out to the whole church this week but wanted 502 congregations to know about that because of how it affects us particularly here sound okay good I want to speak this morning on the theme of generosity and judgment. Um, a long time ago now, 1995, Nick Leeson, about whom a movie was then made, Rogue Trader, a uh, trader in Barings Bank, the second oldest merchant bank in the world, founded in 1762. His rogue tradings, dealing on stuff which he shouldn't have done in a way he shouldn't have done brought that bank down. The bank collapsed with losses of nearly a billion pounds. One man's actions causing an ancient institution to collapse. More recently, the financial crisis of 2007-2008, precipitated by lots of banks in the States lending on what were called sub subprime mortgages, uh, mortgages which should never have been lent on properties they should never have been 
lent on. And that led to the collapse of another bank, Lehman Brothers, in September of 2008. And that precipitated a global economic downturn, which 10 years later, we're still living with the consequences and impact of. Think about the 2009 MP's expenses scandal. All kind of things going on, particularly in terms of housing. Uh, MPs having entitlement on expenses to have second properties to help them in their constituency or close to Westminster, if their constituency is far from Westminster, but some MPs buy second houses which were neither in their constituency nor close to Westminster. MPs flipping their houses where they could designate a second house in order to claim back costs, stamp duty and decorating costs, but changing which house was a second house so they could claim that twice, claiming for their second home while renting out other homes. Elliot Morley, one MP, was particularly notorious. He had a second home paid for out of expenses, which was then rented to another MP who was paying the rent on his expenses. And round and round it went. Now, those kind of things caused outrage. The actions of Nick Leeson bringing down Bearings Bank, the financial crisis of 2007-2008, the MP's expenses scandal, they caused outrage. Caused outrage because of their impact upon so many people, especially the global financial crisis impacted everybody. Those people who haven't had a pay rise in 10 years because of, the, of what happened then. There's a great sense of injustice. With the MPs' expenses scandal, there's a great sense of injustice. How can they do this? There was also, it has to be said, a high degree of hypocrisy in many of the comments that people made. But the lack of personal integrity in all those stories is obvious. People doing things they shouldn't have done. People thinking they could get away with stuff. People wanting to look better than they were. People wanting to maximize the angles they could, playing the game, and all kinds of negative consequences as a result. Now, today's story is really that kind of story. It's a story where there's a contrast between some people who act with incredible generosity and incredible integrity, and a couple who lack with a complete lack of integrity. And that has a profound impact. It has a profound impact upon the community of which they're a part. also has a profound impact upon the individual's concerned. It's a story of generosity and a story of judgment. We're going to be in the book of Acts again. We're on Acts chapter 4. It's on page 1096 in one of the church Bibles. I'm going to read from verse 32. Now if you, whether or not you watched the wedding yesterday, you will doubtless have heard about the preacher at the wedding yesterday. <laughs> I, I watched and I thought he was fantastic. Um, but there, was no neutral, there were no neutral opinions about the preacher at yesterday's wedding. Some people loved him, other people were deeply offended. No neutral opinions. Actually, that's what the gospel does. People, get, people expected, royal wedding, what do you normally get? You get five minutes of platitudes. Rather than that, we had ten minutes of the gospel. And it was brilliant, but it, it's a dividing line. Some loved it, some hated it. Some celebrated, some were offended. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. That's what the gospel does. The word is preached, and some people are offended and push against it and react against it. Others say, this is amazing, and they respond in faith. And this morning's story is very much one of those stories. It's a Marmite story. You'll either be offended or you'll end up rejoicing. That's what the gospel does. Acts 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind, 
No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Because in the Middle East, you don't leave bodies hanging around. You stick them in the ground as soon as they die. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Hallelujah. It's a story of generosity and judgment. There's generosity, that some come and lay money at the apostles' feet, and there's judgment, that Ananias and Sapphira fall dead at the apostles' feet. And there's your choice. Generosity or judgment. Now, what's going on? Uh, The book of Acts is Luke's recounting of the first 30 years of the history of the church. He's writing to his friend Theophilus, telling him about those first 30 years, about how the church started, what happened, and we call it the book of Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles. Probably a better term, actually, is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the story of how God's Holy Spirit filled people and transformed them, and how that led to other people being transformed. The first six chapters of this book, which we're in at the moment, talk about that first community, that first congregation, that first church in Jerusalem. And this is a group of people who are characterized by power. God is at work amongst them by his Holy Spirit. And amazing things are happening. Miracles are happening. The the story that immediately precedes our passage today is a story about a lame beggar who has been lame since birth. And then in his 40s, Peter and John pray for him and he's miraculously healed. There's incredible things happening. 
And there's extraordinary community being built. They were devoted to one another and devoted to the apostles' teaching and devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread, and they were incredibly generous together. And opposition was also getting stirred up, that the authorities of the day felt threatened by what was happening, and they in turn started being threatening towards these first believers. And so we get to Acts 4, verse 32, and what's described in those verses is this model church, a church which displays extraordinary generosity, a church in which there is no need. There's a new community being formed, and it's modeling something of the kingdom of heaven. Things are different here. There's no needy person, because if there's any need, the others sort it out. They sell what they have and provide for those who are hurting and help them. That's how this community functions. It's a, it's a picture of what the kingdom of God is going to look like. It's a picture of what community should look like. It's a picture of how we'd all want life to be, really. It's the kind of community we'd like to live in. It's the kind of community you'd want your street to look like. It's the kind of community that we'd want our nation to be like. It's the kind of community in which kids in London aren't stabbing each other and kids in Texas aren't getting shot. And It's a different kind of world which is being displayed. It's a model community, but Luke doesn't idealize this community. And we see that by the story that's included here, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This isn't just kind of covered up and we'll pretend that didn't happen. No, it's included in the account. And so in this part of the story that Luke tells us, we get a, we get a model of what generosity can look like and what generosity can achieve. But we also get a warning about what or how deceitful the human heart can be. And what the consequences of that deceitfulness can be. That both generosity and deceit have an impact upon community. Community is either built up or torn down. And it's built up by generosity and it's torn down by lies. Of course, the story raises all kinds of questions for us. Why did Ananias and Sapphira lie? How did Peter know that Ananias, Ananias was lying? Why did Peter not warn Sapphira about what had happened to her husband? How did she not know that her husband had died? Where had she been that her husband was already dead and buried and she didn't know and she comes in and, and then Peter doesn't say to her, you better watch out. No, he just kind of seems to set her up to fail. What's going on? You can't really answer that without... Let me give you the answer now, partway through the message... The answer's really in the verses we didn't read from verse 12 of chapter 5. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. That's the, that's the answer, that what this leads to in the end is further gospel advance, further spirit-empowered mission. That's, that's where the story gets us to. But let's back up. Let's look at the big picture of what's happening here. And, and like a picture, we're going to look at four aspects, kind of four corners of the picture frame to help us understand hopefully something of what's happening in this story. The first corner of the picture is that all the believers were one in heart and mind, it says. Now there's a real model for us and a challenge for us in that as well. This, the unity of the community here is extraordinary and clearly the members of this community, they were not pursuing their own agendas. There wasn't much individualitis going on. We 
particularly in our Western materialistic world, we can, we can be deeply afflicted by the sickness of individualitis where it's just about me and, and my needs and what I'm going to do. That's not what's happening here. The focus of this community is definitely more we than me. There's a model for us in that in terms of us as a church. What kind of community are we going to be? Are, are we going to be one in heart and mind? Is our focus going to be more we than me or... Is our Western individualitis going to be the thing which defines us? It's a challenge to us in that because the way this community lived, so extraordinary, so just radical. It's a challenge to me in that. How radical am I really in my commitment to the community of the people of God? That's the first corner of the picture frame. The second corner is that the disciples own things, but they don't consider them as their own. One of the interesting things about this story is that clearly the disciples, the believers, had complete liberty and freedom to do whatever they wanted with the stuff they owned. That's what Peter says to Ananias. Look, it was yours in the first place, and once you sold it, you were free to do what you like with the cash. So this wasn't a kind of imposed communist system that the apostles are saying to the members of the church, you have to sell what you have and you have to give us the money. It wasn't imposed like that. No, there was a, a willing generosity on the part of most of the people in the church. It's, they wanted, they, they had stuff which they were fully entitled to own. It was theirs. But because of the transformation in their hearts, because of what they'd received from Christ, they didn't consider things as their own. They didn't hold on to things tight-handed, but were open-handed with the stuff that they had. There wasn't compulsion about their generosity. They were just generous because they wanted to be generous because of what they had received in Christ. And so there's this phrase that's used a few times here that they came and put things at the feet of the apostles. It's a kind of a metaphor. I guess maybe actually literally that happened. They'd bring some money. I've sold this field. I'm putting it at your feet. Why, Why at the feet? Well, it's a sign of trust. It's actually a sign of worship. They're not worshiping the apostles. They're worshiping Jesus, but they come and give it to the apostles who are Christ's representatives in that place and it's a sign of trust in God and the sign of worship of Jesus and not compelled but just from generous hearts. Now, there's a model for us and a challenge in that as well. A model of generosity, a model of generosity which comes from transformed hearts, not from any sense of compulsion. It's a challenge to us in that. It's a challenge to all of us about how we handle our money and possessions, how we regard them, how we handle what is our own, but not our own. That's the second corner of the picture frame. The third corner is that the apostles testify to the resurrection. That's what it says here. The apostles were testifying powerfully to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Ananias and Sapphira test God. It's testifying and there's testing. In this story, you've got some very vivid human characters. You've got the apostles, especially the apostle Peter. You've got this character, Joseph, who gets renamed as Barnabas, his nickname, Mr. Encouragement. You've got Ananias and Sapphira. These are the characters in the story. But actually, the main character in the story is God, because it all revolves around him. 
The apostles are testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're testifying to what God has done, that Jesus is not dead, he's alive, he's reigning in glory. They're testifying to the truth of the gospel. And when Ananias and Sapphira lie, they're not just lying to men, they're not just lying to Peter, but Peter says you're, you're lying to God. Actually, God is the chief character in this story. And there's a model and a challenge for us as well there, the, the model of recognizing the centrality of God in all things. And a challenge to us that do we recognize that God is the main player? Do we recognize that when we come and we're generous, actually we're blessing other people, but it's an act of worship directed to him ultimately. When we lie, do we recognize that we're not just lying to human beings, we're trying to deceive God? What's our testimony? The apostles testify. Ananias and Sapphira test. What's our testimony? What's our story about how we're living? And then the fourth corner of this picture is that Ananias and Sapphira knowingly seek to deceive the apostles. It says that they acted in full knowledge of one another and sought to deceive the apostles and God. And I guess there was some self-deception going on with Ananias and Sapphira before there was this public attempt at deception. But for whatever reason, Ananias and Sapphira began by lying to themselves, and then they tried to lie to God. And you can kind of imagine the conversation they had, the kind of self-justifying, self-deceiving conversation they had. You can imagine them as a married couple lying in bed and talking things over and saying, hey, you know we've got that house, we don't really need it, but we sure could use the cash at the moment if we sold it. Yeah, but everybody else seems to be selling stuff and giving the money to the church. Yeah, but we're committed to the church too, just as much as them. Yes, we are. But it doesn't seem fair that Joseph should get nicknamed Mr. Encouragement. I bet if we don't give our profits to the church, we'll get called something else. Yes, and I'm sure Joseph can afford it more than we could anyhow. Well, how about a win-win? How about if we give some of the money, but keep some of the money? There's nothing wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong with that. But we don't have to tell anyone about it. It's money. It's our money. It's a private. Money's private. It's a private matter. You're right. We don't even have to say anything. We'll, we'll just, we could just give the impression that we're giving it all, and no one will ever know the difference. Good thinking. No one will ever know. Good night, Mr. Generous. Good night, Mrs. Generous. Now, is it that difficult to imagine us having those kind of conversations, those kind of thoughts as well? I think probably Nick Leeson had that kind of conversation going on in his head when he was spinning deals, which ended up in the second oldest merchant bank in the world collapsing with nearly a billion pounds worth of liabilities. He probably had those self-deceptive conversations. I can do this and it will work and nobody will ever know and it will all come good. I imagine lots of MPs were having those kind of conversations with themselves. I'm not sure this is quite right, but hey, it seems to be allowed in the expenses and, no, and they're doing it and no one will ever know. And What's wrong with it? Actually, I deserve it. Actually, it makes sense. We're not 
MPs aren't paid as much as they should be for the hours we've put in. Of course, yeah, this is okay. Imagine it with all those bankers in 2007, 2008. Yeah, we can do this deal. We can lend on that. Oh, it looks a bit dodgy, but it'll be okay. It's easy to have those kind of conversations with yourself. Reality is that we want to look better than we are. I think Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look better than they were. They wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to have their cake and eat it. They wanted to, perhaps genuinely wanted to give to the church. And they wanted the recognition of that, but they also wanted to hold on to the stuff. And rather than just being honest and saying, we're giving some and we're keeping some. We just need the cash at the moment. We'll give what we can. Rather than being honest, they lied to themselves and they tried to lie to Peter and they tried to lie to God. And the results... What is the result? Well, the result is that Peter is not deceived. And we're not told how that happened. We're not, Luke doesn't spell it out, but I guess Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, has some kind of prophetic insight. I guess he looks into Ananias' eyes and he knows that Ananias is lying. And he says, Ananias, you're lying. And that's a problem because Ananias isn't just lying to Peter, he's lying to God. His sin is exposed and he drops down dead. Now why does he die? Again, Luke doesn't tell us really. It's not a question he seems interested in answering. Some people suggest that it was just the shock of being found out. Seems actually there's more kind of direct divine intervention People might die of shock, but it seems a bit sudden. We don't really know, but there's a quick burial. And for whatever reason, Sapphira doesn't know that her husband's been found out and died. And she comes waltzing in, and the Apostle Peter seems to set her up. Sapphira, is this the money that you got for the fields? Some of the commentators suggest this was just because Peter was very young and very new in ministry, and he hadn't learned any pastoral tact yet. And maybe a few years later, it was said, Sapphira, just to let you know, Ananias has died because he's lied about the money. Now, is this the money you got for the fields? Doesn't happen. She repeats the lie. Burial number two. Why do they die? The answer to that question really doesn't seem to be something that Luke is interested It's where... Without our modern Western mindset, it's a question we want answered. Why have they died? It's not a question that Luke engages with at all. What Luke seems to be most interested in is what happens next. The apostles perform many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. This is an amazing paradox. People are too scared to join them, but people keep joining them. As a result, people brought those who were ill into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Luke's not much interested in the, in the reasons why Ananias and Sapphira die, apart from the obvious one of their lying. What he's interested in is that what happens next is more breakthrough. 
of the Spirit and the Gospel. More people coming to faith, more people being healed, more oppressed people being set free. That's what happens. Now, we can make some suggestions about the death, so. Luke doesn't reference it, but there's a parallel story in the Old Testament, in Joshua chapter 7, the story of Achan. In this story, the people of Israel have just entered the Promised Land after 400 years in slavery in Egypt and 40 years wandering in the wilderness. At last, they've crossed the River Jordan and they've come into the Promised Land and they've just won a mighty victory over the city of Jericho. And then Achan takes some silver and gold, which he's not entitled to, and buries it under the floor of his tent. And things start to go wrong for Israel, and God says, well, it's because there's dishonesty in your community, and it's found out that Achan is the guilty party, and he is put to death. They're parallel stories, and they're kind of parallel moments in the story of the people of God. In Achan's case, Israel had just entered the promised land, and Achan's sin threatens the integrity of the community. We've entered the promised land. It's a new day. How are we, what kind of community are we going to be? Are we going to be a community of integrity and generosity, or are we going to be a community of selfishness and lies? Achan's action threatens to undermine the whole of the community and has to be dealt with. In this story of Ananias and Sapphira, the church is just about to enter her promised land. At the moment, the only Christians in the world are those in Jerusalem, but they're about to be scattered to the nations, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Ananias and Sapphira's deceit threatens that community. Is the church going to be a place of integrity, of generosity, or is it going to be a place of lies and deceit? And in both these cases, it seems like God draws the line that the people of God are to be honest and they're to be generous and they're to find their treasure in God. People of God are to be like Joseph, known as Barnabas. Why? Because that leads to good things. That leads to healthy community. Whereas lying is bad and leads to death. We get worried, very worried about Ananias and Sapphira dying, but the, the bigger point is that deceit leads to death. might not lead to your physical death right there, right then, but it, it's always deathly. It creates death. The financial scandals of the last 10, the last 20 years created death in terms of the impact upon people's lives. That's what lying does. What does the story teach us? It teaches us that God really is at work in congregations like this. And so there's a challenge for us in thinking about if you're part of this congregation, what does that mean for you? Do we take it seriously? Our calling here at 502 Gateway Church is to make God known. Do that through our actions as well as our words. We're not to deny him by our actions, as Ananias and Sapphira, as Achan did. We're to be like Barnabas, to make him known through our actions. There might be an actual personal rebuke for some in this story. The obvious, obvious application is this. If, you, if you're a liar, don't lie. If you're in self-deceit, stop. 
Lies lead to death, leads to death of relationship, leads to financial ruin, leads to all kinds of death. Self-deceit leads to public deceit, which leads to death. And you might be a good liar, but you can't fool God. There might be things in this story which just help correct us, maybe not a firm rebuke, which we know we need to repent of and change, but maybe more kind of course corrections that maybe little things in our lives now, which are okay now, but five years, 10 years, 20 years, cause ruin. Nick Leeson didn't ruin Bearings Bank in a day. The subprime market in the US didn't happen in a day. It's mistakes are made and build and build and build. Maybe there's a course correction a lot of this can revolve around our sense of personal reputation. It does seem that Ananias and Sapphira were motivated by personal reputation. They wanted to look better than they were. They wanted to buff their reputation. It's much better to be honest. Be honest about ourselves. Don't put on a front. Don't lie. Don't be your own self-publicist. Don't spin something about yourself which isn't true. This particular story is about money. Often it is about money. We want to look better than we are. It could be about anything else, though. It could be about sex. It could be about power. It could be about all kinds of things. Is there something in your life which just, if you let that drift, five years, ten years, twenty years, will mean shipwreck for you and for others? And this story does help train us for righteousness. It teaches us that we are to give ourselves fully to God and fully to one another. It causes us to look into our own hearts. What, are, what am I really like? Am I really as generous as I would like others to think that I am? What is my attitude to my money and possessions? What would it mean to be a Barnabas? What it means to have a church full of Barnabases, a church in which we're giving people nicknames of Mr. Encouragement, Mrs. Encouragement, Mrs. Generosity, because of the quality of their lives and the truthfulness of their actions. And overall, this story points us towards what God wants for his community, for his church. It's what happens in these next verses. It's these demonstrations of spirit-empowered mission. As the apostles go out and heal many and proclaim the gospel and people are afraid because of the evident power of God at work and yet they can't resist, they come. That There's a response, not, a, not an insipid response. This isn't a message of platitudes. This is like yesterday's message at the royal wedding. It's not five minutes of platitudes, it's gospel power which provokes a response. Some people are offended and run away. Other people are amazed and come near. That's what the story is about. That we'd be a community of people who don't just get together and have a nice meeting. Aren't just insipid and cool and lukewarm in our faith. But there's a clarity about our message and an integrity to our lives that some will be offended by and others will be drawn to, that many lives might be saved. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would learn from these stories. Thank you for what Luke records for us, what 
is taught us in these stories. I pray that we would feel the challenge, Lord, of that first church to the quality of their lives. That we would live more that way. And I pray that you keep us from the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Thank you for that scripture we started with in the Psalms this morning about being kept from sin and how you always, you always have mercy on those who love your name. And I pray that we would know your mercy today and you would direct our footsteps according to your word and that sin wouldn't rule over us, but that we would have integrity of heart. Lord, thank you for the picture that's painted here of our personal freedom, but also the joy of working together in community. I pray that we would live that way, and I pray that the gospel message we declare wouldn't be compromised. I pray it wouldn't be insipid. I pray it wouldn't be just the mouthing of platitudes. I pray that out of our witness, our words and our actions, there'd be a response called from other people. And Lord, I pray that you would you'd fill this place with many people who turn to you, just as happened in Jerusalem at this time. In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen. Amen, let's respond in worship. Mm-hmm.